just after 9 o'clock on a Saturday morning, and that must mean it's time again for Money Management with Opus 111 Group's Mike Mail. Here's Mike. Good morning. Welcome to Money Management. I'm Mike Mayo with the Spokane office of the Opus 111 Group. Uh, we're here to talk with you about the markets and the economy. Here, uh, looking back at the week of the 22nd of April, give you some uh, feedback on the, what may have transpired during uh, the market week, as well as some other news. We'll talk about the uh, economic reports that came out. Uh, some, again, general market information, the outlook from some folks about uh, things going forward. And I also want to uh, touch on something uh, I know... This is Financial Literacy Month, and I want to touch on something that, uh, well, came up a lot here recently due to uh, capital gains, and it's a way to uh, basically avoid capital gains tax. So we'll be talking about uh, that uh, as we move along. So first of all, <laughs> yesterday was no fun. Let's see. The Dow ended at 33,823, down 968. That's about 2.5%. The uh, S&P down the same percentage at 42.71. Nasdaq about a similar percentage at 12.839. The uh, Russell 2000 closed the week at 19.40. Gold settled at 19.33. That's the lowest in about three weeks now. Uh, silver also at about the lowest in three weeks at 24.27. Crude, let's keep the party started. Uh, it's also at the lowest in about three weeks at 102.27. Ten-year Treasury, other way around, is about the highest in a while at 2.90%. And soft white wheat was quoted at 11.09 a bushel. You know, we, so far, we've got the widest dispersion among sector returns since the end of 2000. I mean, everybody's all over the place. You know, it's only been a bear market for those uh, investors with too much exposure uh, in mm, certain areas. You know, it's what they call a bifurcated market. There's parts that are going up and parts that are going down. It's not a bear market for investors who have uh, positions in energy, utilities, the big health care, well, at least until today, and uh, yesterday, excuse me, and the mining stocks. There's no evidence whatsoever that tech and growth stocks will become the leaders again anytime soon. You know, just because they were high once doesn't mean that they're going to turn around and go back right away. And uh, for what it's worth, uh, Disney is the worst performing Dow Jones stock over the past year. It's down more than 30%. Now, the earnings season, which has just really effectively got started this week, is off to a great start. About 81% of the S&P companies are reporting uh, earnings ahead of expectations. That's according to FactSet. About 7.5% of those uh, folks uh, have reported results, uh, and the first quarter earnings, uh, I believe, will jump 5.3% for the quarter. So not a ton, but it's still up. And, uh, you know, this is the time of year, too, with the earnings reports. It can be brutal for those folks that come up short. Matter of fact, it can even be brutal for those who beat expectations. Some of you may be familiar with a company called Netflix. Well, it earned a bunch of money, $3.53 per share, beat the forecast by a lot. But the traders were distraught. 
The reason is is because uh, Netflix lost 200,000 subscribers in the first quarter. That's the first time they've lost subscribers in more than 10 years. And uh, as a result, uh, their market capitalization has dropped rather significantly. Uh, and the company uh, going forward says they're going to lose another 2 million folks in just this quarter now. Stock's down about 25%, uh, about 40% year-to-date. Um, not a good thing. But, you know, this is uh, Joseph Schumpeter, Schumpeter, excuse me. He was an uh, economist, I believe, in the uh, late 19, uh, 1800s. And he calls this process creative destruction. What that means is, is that, you know, companies come and go. Uh, and this is how it should be in a free market world. You know, one day you're at the top and uh, nobody can touch you. And the next you lose half your market cap. Well, we certainly don't need any of those uh, regulators in D.C. policing our business. The market does that just very fine. Thank you very much. And uh, next week, uh, Thursday, we'll get a look at the first quarter GDP figures. Uh, could be a low number, but once again, we'll see. I want to touch here on uh, bonds just a bit. Uh, you know, only in the past month or two has the bond market, in my opinion, finally begun to adjust to a higher inflation reality. And it still looks like there's more adjusting to be made. You know, although we've had this recent rise in yields, uh, it's been pretty, you know, just like a pretty sharp, pretty straight up. They're still significantly below where they should be if inflation is indeed persistent. And you see, bonds go opposite of what interest rates go. If the interest rates rise, the bonds will go down in price. Again, yields never change. But, but never have the real yields been so low. Real yields means you take the interest rate that you're quoted, subtract the current inflation rate, and that's what you're really making. And oh, by the way, you should probably put tax in there too if it's in a regular account. But what it means is, is that bonds investors are starting to learn that owning bonds is a great way to lose, on a guaranteed basis, substantial purchasing power. The market is only expecting inflation to average somewhat less than 3.5% going forward. Uh, and that's way less than what we've just gone through. In, in other words, the bond market is expecting inflation to fall significantly in the years to come. But since the Fed hasn't really effectively started to tighten, you know, that's a little bit of a fingers crossed kind of assumption, I think. And I had a very fine listener ask me to uh, go over the uh, I-bonds, which we talked about a couple weeks ago, uh, because in today's world, they're a pretty good place to be. Now, in... From all the bonds, all the U.S. Treasuries, the highest you can get in a U.S. Treasury, a 30-year bond, is 2.95%. So they're safe. Safe meaning that you will get your money back, not that they won't fluctuate in price. But so 2 to 3%. You know, the biggest thing, the thing that really caused the markets to uh, go down these last couple of sessions was simply... <laughs> A few words from Jerome Powell on, what was it, Wednesday, I guess it was. No, I think it was Thursday. Thursday it was. Uh, speaking at the International Monetary Fund on the global economy, he said, and I'm quoting, it is appropriate in my view to be moving a little more quickly to raise interest rates. I also think there is something to be said for front-end loading. Uh, any accommodation one thinks is appropriate 
and he closes by saying, I would say 50 basis points, or one-half of 1%, 1 will be on the table for the May meeting, unquote. That is what caused it all to start going south, uh, because on Thursday, the market was up over 300 and some points. It wound up, I'm talking about the Dow, it wound up closing down 368 points. Nothing else changed. Not one thing else changed. Okay. Uh, so what you've got is this perception that has come into the marketplace uh, that things are bad, things are different, we don't know what to do. Uh, and so when in doubt, put your head in the sand. That's kind of what's going on out there. Because yesterday, we had some great corporate earnings. There were a couple that weren't so hot, but there were some great ones. And uh, as you'll hear here briefly, the, the economic reports are pretty good. So why people are singing the blues is beyond me. Because once again, please understand, the markets don't really care about, uh, what's the word? Mm, current events in the greatest scheme of things. It's, very, it's a very uh, hard-hearted group. And so it, this is all just data. And so all the things that you may feel personally are a cause for concern. Um, the market shall have looked at them and added them into the mix and say, well, that's a, a good thing or a bad thing, and now let's drive on. So let's just start with a dramatic reading of some of these reports. Industrial activity continued its V-shaped recovery in March. That's the third month in a row that it's going up. Broad-based, he added. Uh, the main contributor to the uh, gain was manufacturing output from the uh, auto sector where things have picked up. And uh, that's the third monthly consecutive gain for that particular part of the world. And business inventories remain lean, which is good because that means that things have to be made to refill those inventories. Order backlogs are elevated, also a good thing. We haven't quite got as much as we need out there in the system as we know. And demand certainly continues to outstrip supply. You know, industrial production, sorry, industrial production is above the pre-lockdown levels. So the, the economy is not just tripping, stumbling along. And even the retail sales show that even after adjusting for inflation, retail sales are up 13.6% year over year. That ain't bad. Now, ongoing issues with supply chains and labor shortages, sure. That's putting a hitch in our get-along for sure. But with job openings in the manufacturing sector more than double, double what they were before the lockdown showed up. So this mismatch between the supply and demand is why inflation is up so much and so quickly. According to Baker Hughes, the number of uh, oil and gas rigs in operation in the U.S. is still about 18% below where they were before lockdowns. So the producers, regardless of uh, interference from D.C., <clears throat> excuse me, have a lot of ground to make up. Housing starts and building permits came in above expectations in March. <clears throat> I'm sorry, excuse me. And uh, media, well, this is not the great price, but median home prices reached a record $375,300 in March. And that combination of mortgage interest rates up and a shortage of homes, uh, that's putting a bit of a drag on... Uh, the existing home sales, which fell for the second month in a row in March. 
And, uh, you know, it's still trying to find its footing there, that is to say the housing market. Um, the uh, 30-year mortgage is up uh, 2% since December. Now, that's huge. That is just a ton. So uh, that's, you know, so certainly slowed the buying somewhat. But as the supply continues to build, and it will, prices will at some point drop. I'm not talking about interest rates. I'm talking about, well, okay, maybe they won't drop, but they'll certainly stop going up. And, uh, you know, every house it isn't going to be able to sell for 42 times its uh, appraised value, as some of them seem to be going now. This is just an interesting thing to me. 13 states have re fully recovered all the jobs they lost during lockdown. Now, I'm gonna, some of the name uh, four or five of them that have recovered four of the five that have recovered 95 percent or fewer include lovely places like New York, New Jersey, D.C. Um, locally, uh, Washington has only got 98.8 percent of their jobs back. California 98.3, Oregon 98.2. Now, on the other hand. There are, of the 13, they include such as Utah, which has gotten back 105%, Idaho, 104.9, Montana, 103.2, and Arizona, 101.1. So there's a lot of states uh, that are definitely doing better. They're typically in the West and uh, typically have, um, well, you can look and see who governs those states and figure it out yourself. Now, you know, there's... Two explanations for the slow recovery in those places. Uh, they had more. They had put upon them more severe and restrictive lockdowns, so they lost more jobs in their first bang place. And second, the jobs with slow job excuse me, the states with slow job recoveries also tend to be the states with high welfare benefits. So a lot of those workers uh, seem to be in less of a hurry to get back to work. Now, one final point here is that. Jobless claims are hovering around 50-year lows. Uh, they've been doing that since late 2021. Um, the lowest, with the, what they call continuing claims, that's the uh, you know folks that have been unemployed for a while. Uh, the lowest level since February 1970. And <laughs> that, there is nothing in common with February 1970 in terms of the economy except for that number. And finally, 17 of 18 service industries, that's lion's share of the economy, reported expanding business uh, in the most recent period. So I don't know why people are concerned about the economy or the U.S. or what have you. Sure, I look around. I mean, I'm not operating in a vacuum. I read the headlines. That's my job. That's what I do all day long. Uh, we, I know what's going on out there, but... You know, where are you? You in terms of an investor. Think about this. Position yourself. Um, are you a trader? Are you a person that is flipping positions on a very short-term basis? Okay, then news is of high import to you in terms of how you operate your uh, portfolio. For most of us who are uh, doing long-term planning, whether it's for school or... Uh, a home, uh, retirement, some all of the above. Um, it, it, <laughs> this is just how the markets go. They go up, they go down. 
And if you look at any records of longer-term investing, uh, over 20 years in the U.S., you have never lost money in the stock market. Okay? You can look it up. I'm not making it up. Any 20-year period going back to, I think, 1925, maybe 1926. But 20-year period, like 1926 to 1946. Uh, all of those, you know, and, and in 10-year periods, it's been something like 95% have been winning situations. So... Don't be deterred, discouraged by near-term news and the effects it's having on the marketplace. Have a strategy, have a plan, have a focus, and stick with it. Don't let these nimrods on TV discourage you from doing the right thing for you because they have no interest in you. They have interest in selling you whatever it is they're selling and uh, moving on from there. Now, this past year was particularly good for capital gains. Um, you know, the S&P up, what, 28% and the Dow's up and NASDAQ's up. Everything was up. You know, as part of our the way we manage portfolios, we look at folks' holdings and especially in the last quarter of the year, we look and see if we have some positions that aren't doing so well so we can, uh, you know, sell for a loss and help uh, mitigate some of the tax on the gains. Well, there weren't too many of those dang losses around last year. And so... A lot of folks have had, uh, you know, uh, much higher tax bills than what they'd anticipated. And that, of course, the good news is you made money. The bad news is you didn't make as much as you thought because Sam's there with his hand out. So uh, anyhow, uh, I want what we're talking about here are something called charitable remainder trusts. I can't say that very well. It's also referred to as a capital gains avoidance trust. Um, now, this is all legal beagle stuff. I'm not, uh, let me say absolutely, though I did spend <laughs> a couple semesters there in law school, I am not a lawyer. Never. No, not a chance. And so um, I am not attempting to provide legal advice because this is something that you absolutely need to do with an attorney. And if it's someone who is familiar with these kinds of things, all the better. Um, you don't want to be just getting a form and filling in the blanks because uh, it's got a few too many moving parts for that. So here's the deal. If, if you're a, a charitably inclined person and you want to diversify a highly appreciated portfolio, you can transfer these highly appreciated assets. We're talking stocks, real estate, investment real estate, think anything like that. Capital assets. You can transfer those appreciated assets into a, you know, forgive me, I'm going to say CRT because that stands for Charitable Remainder Trust. It's just easier to say. In order to generate some income over time, you get right now an immediate charitable deduction and defer paying capital gains tax on those appreciated assets. You know, you could consider these, I think, when, while well, generating cash flow, uh, you know, it, and an immediate tax deduction. Grantors, which are donors, which is basically the folks putting the money into the trust, will name themselves or their spouses as a trustee. Grantors, other family members, can also act as trustees. So by gifting assets to a CRT, you take them out of your taxable estate. So that's a good thing right there. 
the remainder passing to the charities is not includable in your taxable estate. There is no estate tax consequence so long as you and your spouse are the only lead beneficiaries. Now, these trusts may last, not must, but may last uh, uh, for the lead beneficiaries' joint lives, in other words, however longest one of you lives, or for a term of years which isn't, can't be more than 20. So you got two choices here in terms of uh, CRTs. One is called, <laughs> sorry, a CRAT, which is a Charitable Remainder Annuity Trust. It pays you the same dollar amount of, out of the trust assets each year. The other option is what's called a CRUT, which is a Charitable Remainder Unit Trust. Now what this does, it, it pays out an, a, a, an amount equal to a percentage of the trust value at the beginning of each year. It's around 5 to 8%. And the beneficiaries get larger payments if the rate of return is higher than that fixed percentage. But you get smaller ones if the rate of return is less than that. So it's not as uh, predictable. Now, gifts made to one of these, uh, again, qualify for income and gift tax charitable contributions. When you establish one of these guys, your gift of cash or property is made to an irrevocable trust. That means you can't change it. You or another non-charitable beneficiary retain an annuity, which is simply you're getting fixed payments of principal and interest. You're creating an annuity, which is giving you fixed payments of principal and interest from the trust for a certain number of years. Again, as I said, up to 20. And um, or for the lives of the non-charitable beneficiaries. At the end of the term, the charity you specify receives the balance of the trust property. You get an income tax deduction for the present value of the remainder interest that ultimately passes to the charity. And the feds determine pretty much what that amount is. And here, here's, here's the benefits in no particular order. Uh, you avoid capital gains on the sale of highly appreciated property. You generate a lifetime income stream for yourself. Diversification of your assets. Save income taxes now and potentially save estate taxes as well. Uh, benefit a charitable organization you, organization you care about. And you pay no capital gains tax when the asset is sold. It also lets you help out one or more charities. That deduction is limited to 60%, 60% of your adjusted gross income for the year uh, if gifted with a public charity or donor advice fund as the beneficiary. It may only be limited to 30 or 20% of that adjusted gross income depending upon the type of property you get, short-term, long-term, uh, what type of charitable organization, other things like that. And this is why you only set them up with an attorney. You can't figure all this stuff out on your own. It's impossible. You know, you, it, but they will help you. You know, what are you trying to do? How, what assets are you trying? And you don't have to do this one time. You don't have to do it all at once. Uh, you can spread it out. You know, set up the trust and do it over a series of years, if you wish. You transfer your appreciated property to the trust. The trust sells the property, and since it's a tax-exempt trust, it doesn't have to pay any capital gains tax. So the trust then distributes income to the income beneficiaries via that annuity we're talking about. <coughs> Excuse me. 
And most payouts from the trust are taxed to the beneficiary as ordinary income or capital gains. And uh, again, you receive that Fed income tax deduction for the gift. Uh, and that, that formula that they use for uh, what that is, the amount of deduction, that's how old are you, the payout percentage you choose for your annuity, there's a lot of moving parts. Once again, why you got to go to the attorney. So you must pay tax on your income stream, which uh, comes in ordinary income, capital gains, other taxes that didn't come in, a return of principal. So, you know, any income you receive from your trust can ultimately reduce the total contribution you end up leaving to your charity. Now, in other words, you could spend it all down, theoretically, although in most cases that's not likely going to happen. Uh, and you may not keep any rights to change which uh, beneficiaries receive payments. Uh, and you don't have any limitations on how many uh, recipients of trust payments exist. You do have a special tax form, of course, called the 1041 you got to fill out. But uh, beyond that, um, pretty straightforward. And finally, the actuarial value of the, um, the remainder left to charity must be at least 10% of whatever you put in there to start. So there you go. Those are the big pieces. And I think uh, you don't have to be a quintillionaire to do this, but you know, if you, especially if you've had stocks a long time, and or uh, some investment properties you've had a long time, uh, you may want to consider doing that because you can get a pretty dang good write-off from something that really isn't, uh, well, it may be paying you uh, cash flow or uh, some dividends, interest, whatever the case may be. But in terms of unlocking the value, you know, you're going to, uh, your best bet uh, is maybe 20% of the uh, gain will be paid in tax, right? Long-term capital gains. And there isn't any better tax, so I mean that's not a bad option if you just want to say, "I'm done. I want the I want the proceeds to me. I'm not interested in leaving it to whomever." But if you do want to uh, give yourself some diversification, and uh, again, you're charitably inclined, plus, if you will, create some dividend off uh, these uh, additional dividend off these uh, somewhat non-performing assets, this might be something you should do. Again, it's called a Charitable Remainder Trust, CRT. So you can talk to your friendly attorney about uh, how he might be able to help you do that or refer you to someone who can. Uh, Marco Kalanovich from J.P. Morgan said this, and I'm quoting, Both sentiment and positioning are now too bearish in our view. While we slightly reduced our record stock allocation, we remain constructive on stocks and think that a near-term rally is likely particularly in small cap and high beta market segments, unquote. High beta would be the stocks that are pretty volatile on a day-to-day -day basis. Brian Price, he's head of investment management at Commonwealth Financial, had this to offer. He said, this is the second straight week of significant outflows from stock mutual funds, and uh, days like that are unlikely to change the sentiment moving forward. One positive takeaway may be that sentiment has become too bearish and we see a counter-trend rally at some point in the coming weeks. I don't think they shared notes, but it seems to be a thread here. Uh, Ross Mayfield, he's an investment strategy analyst at Baird. Um, he says this, Nothing especially new, but a fresh reminder of the monumental shift uh, underway in the policy front. Talking about monetary policy. 
Mr. Powell did note that there's a benefit to front-loading hikes and being aggressive early, so this sets him up for a potential to cut later on if the economy stumbles. Well, I guess that's true, isn't it? Um, but in any regard, I want to... Uh, where'd we go? This is what happens when you lose your... when you bury your notes. Okay, there we go. Uh, Ross Mayfield, uh, I said him. Analysts in general are expecting profits from big U.S. companies to keep growing this year, even as the costs go up. That's bolstered the bull case for stocks at the time when investors are anxious over the Fed and uh, plans to raise interest rates. Now, my my media buddies, financial media buddies, uh, never met something, a, a drum they couldn't beat to help confuse folks. They're currently on the stagflation thing. Okay, We went from inflation to stagflation. So what is stagflation? Stagflation is high inflation while growth is sideways at best. Uh, it was, uh, we saw it in the late 70s, but uh, I don't think those comparisons or even you know, what, how it might affect the market are appropriate. Uh, it's stagflation and persistent high inflation with high employment and stagnant demand. Now, <laughs> we don't have high, high unemployment, I'm sorry, that's what I meant to say. We don't have high unemployment, and high inflation is indeed a relative term uh, because, again, there is no f systemic push through the entire economy for the uh, inflation situation now. There's a lot, all lot of asterisk kinds of things driving this. Like in the 70s, we had the oil thing, you know, and, and they turned off the oil spigots effectively, and we had a recession, we the U.S., that had five quarters, five quarters of negative GDP growth. Inflation doubled in 73, it hit double digits in 74, and unemployment was 9% in 75. That is stagflation. Now, the, uh, are there other important differences between today and the 70s? First, well, so far anyway, the commodity price jumps have been much smaller than the 70s in terms of their magnitude. And in the wake of oil, uh, back in the 70s, I was talking about the oil shock. Well, oil prices quadrupled in 73 and 4 and then doubled again in 79 and 80. Now, they were from low prices, but again, it was relative. The combination of weak, high inflation, weak economic growth, repeated supply shocks, that gave uh, stagflation. And believe it or not, with oil as it's at its current price, of uh, 102, I think it was, uh, something around in there, yeah, 102.27, it's still only two-thirds of the price adjusted for inflation, the only two-thirds of the price in either 1980 or 2008. So that may be why it isn't quite as uh, headline-grabbing as it was back in those days. But I think what this all goes to is that, I don't, I don't think we need to do a survey, but incess, incess, jeepers, Mike, investor sentiment is bad. I mean, it's historically bad. The only times sentiment was this bad was in 1979 when Business Week put out that bogus uh, cover story about the death of equities. 
And that was when we had the savings and loan crisis, and then we've had the uh, big uh, drop-off, the fiscal cliff. Pick it up. I mean, we got a lot of things that have happened uh, in that period of time. And yet, in this last week, uh, stock funds had an outflow of $15.5 billion. That's according to Bank America. And you got to go, uh, wait a minute, why are they taking money out? Because, well, you know, okay, concerns about a recession. But what it tells me is that those folks have no strategy, no focus, no plan. They're totally reacting to the headlines. You know, we've talked about Delbar on this program. They track mutual fund folks and how the difference between just a mutual fund sitting there doing what it does and uh, an individual investor, self-directed investor, with uh, like a 2 to 3% difference in return, this is why. you got to sit through this goofy stuff. I mean, it, 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 there are times when the market is going to rally despite bad headlines, and there's also times when it can't seem to catch a break. And we know, although that's true, there's no magic. It's the nature of the market. The certainty of uncertainty, that's what we have. We know it's going to be uncertain. That's why you diversify. That's why you asset allocate. And in all cases, for sure, for sure, you stay with quality. Now, interestingly, so far, as the quarter is uh, pushing out their numbers, the earnings look pretty good. Earnings growth around 5%. Uh, the uh, big winner, energy, no surprise there. Uh, had earnings growth in the first quarter at 260%, but that was from no meaningful figure. Um, and with... Earnings up and stock prices down, it means the P.E. ratio is down for the year. S&P uh, is about, uh, right now, about 20 times earnings, and the P.E. ratio typically goes down as long-term rates go up. So there may be some more down on that. Now, Eddie Elfenbein, he's a great blogger. He's, he crunched all the data from the entire history of the Dow going back to its founding in 1896. I take it he had some spare time. So what he determined was that there's a noticeable split between the first half of a decade and the second half. For the first five years, the Dow averaged 11.6%. Uh, In the latter half, the Dow has averaged 106.2%. So I guess you have to get through the first half so you can benefit from the second half. Now, I don't think there's any worthwhile trading strategy that you can uh, derive from that data. I mean, you know, quite the opposite. What it shows, uh, I think, is the futility of basing a long-term investing strategy on trying to time the market. Uh, no, that does you no good. It creates uh, tax issues and perhaps some commissions, but that's about all you'll show for it. You know, the stock market is in rally mode about three-quarters of the time, is what Eddie found, and that's pretty much been the case. I think it's, it runs around 70-30-ish. Uh, so it's in a bearish mood about a quarter of the time, and that appears to be what level we're at right now. So, you, And it's hard, I get it. I mean, you have to, this is all about training and practice, and you have to overcome your emotional responses so that you don't wind up costing yourself money. But, uh, well, quite frankly, that's what advisors are for. Uh, we help you talk about that and help you figure out how best to deal with that without uh, crazing angst and uh, the needs for uh, Zoloft and other fine products like that. It's a, 
it's this is the easiest hard thing to do in the world because all you technically have to do is again create a good asset allocation program have a have a strategy that you stick to and don't break it the first time the headlines go if you do that when you see what the averages do over time you're not going to be too distraught because you're not going to be too far off that number so have a great week. Thank you very much for listening. We'll be back next Saturday with more market news. My name is Mike Mayo. I'm with the Spokane office of the Opus 111 Group, and you've been listening to Money Management. Join us again next Saturday morning at this same time for the financial insight, opinion, and perspective of Money Management with Mike Mayo. Have a question or comment? You can reach Mike at our website, opus111group.com. Thank <laughs> you.